will all who outwardly profess obedience to the gospel escape the wrath due for their sins. It is necessary to outwardly profess. That's not a that's not a dirty phrase or a bad bad word or anything like that. That's a good phrase. The answer is not all who outwardly profess obedience to the gospel, but only those who persevere in faith and holiness to the end shall be saved. This lesson happens to fit in beautifully with the whole line of argument of the book of Hebrews that we've we've seen over and over again, especially in the warning passages. An, illust- an illustrative text would be Matthew 7.21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Obedience, not words, are what prove a Christian. Well, let's look at these phrases. What does outwardly profess mean? Well, of course, it simply means to make a verbal claim, especially a religious one. It's to publicly announce or affirm something. In Bible language, we would say confess with the mouth, right? Romans 10. So it's a, it's a verbal commitment. And there are two types of these found in our Bibles. And just as there were basically two kinds of faith and two kinds of repentance, of course, there are two kinds of outward profession. There is true and false, or we might say uh, genuine and hypocritical. And this difference or separation is between those whose claim matches their heart and life and those whose claim doesn't match their heart and life. So, Uh, quickly, a a genuine outward profession. Of course, there are outward professions that are true, that are genuine. Some publicly affirm uh, obedience to the gospel, uh, discipleship in Christ, and their lives conform to that claim. There's not a mismatch between walk and talk, right? To use what, at least up until recently, was very common lingo in evangelicalism. Um, uh, Do you walk the talk or do you just talk the walk? Which is it? If someone professes to serve God, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 say, so if there's this outward profession, then what are, what are we to do? Then we are to clothe ourselves in good deeds. Make it obvious to those around us that uh, what's in the heart comes out in good deeds. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 12 and 13. Our actions demonstrate the genuineness of our profession. In a sense, they keep our promise. All right. So, of course, there is such a thing as a genuine outward profession. Every true Christian has made one of those in one form or another. But there's also um, a, a false one, what the Bible often calls a hypocritical profession. Now, we use the word 
hypocrite or hypocritical in a in a different way than the Bible usually defines it, right? A hypocrite, according to the Bible, is someone whose life doesn't match their profession. It doesn't matter if the person is knowingly or purposely living out a mismatch. It's just that they don't match. Hypocrisy in Scripture is when words and deeds don't match. Right? So whether the person uh, knowingly puts on an act or is apparently completely unaware that there is this discrepancy between his words or works, both of those in the New Testament are called hypocrites. In other words, someone can be a hypocrite consciously, that's the way we normally use the word, or unconsciously, knowingly or unknowingly. All right? And again, we, we normally use it for someone who's pretending, who, who's very aware that they're saying one thing, but they really mean something else or are doing something else. There are instances of that in Scripture, um, Luke 20, verses 20 and 23, there are uh, men who came to Christ, there are spies, and they pretend to act one way, but they, they know very well what they're doing. They're following the orders of the religious leaders. That's a hypocrite in the way we normally think about it. But more often in the Bible, a hypocrite is simply someone whose outward doesn't match his inward regardless of what his motive is, regardless of whether he's self-aware. Christ often, remember, called the Pharisees hypocrites. In Matthew 23.3, he said, they don't practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. But it would actually be pretty hard to prove that at least most of the time, the Pharisees were deliberately acting apart you see, they were so blind, they thought they were living out what they uh, were professing. So, hypocrisy in Scripture isn't so much about motives as it is about discrepancy. Discrepancy. The old Geneva Bible puts it this way. The hypocrite is someone who claims to have a relationship to God and love righteousness, but who in fact is self-seeking and even self-deceived. Now, a self-deceived person doesn't, doesn't know <laughs> that they don't match up. Right? They're blind to that. It's part of what's wrong with them. Uh, many a modern American so-called Christian, disciple of Christ, um, believes in all kinds of things contrary to Scripture and perhaps lives a even a profligate life, and yet they would say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I believe in and I love Jesus. I want to follow his example. I want to please him. But when you look at their life, you say, wait a minute, none of that matches up with the Bible. Now, we don't, we don't accuse them of purposely putting on a mask. Um, they may be, but they don't have to be to be a hypocrite in the New Testament sense. All right? It is possible, of course, to be uh, or try to be religiously respectable 
but not have any living force to act out godliness. This is what we always fear in ourselves and others at points in our life when we say, where's the evidence? Uh, am I really living uh, enough like a Christian to be considered a Christian? Uh, this is why the Bible calls us time and time again to make our calling and election sure, to test ourselves. Because, and this is very sad, but this is true, you can be sincerely wrong. You can think you know Christ, even love Christ, and are a follower of his, and not be. It's not only fakers for whom that can be true. I think there are probably a much higher percentage of people who simply are sincere but wrong about their own spiritual condition. All right? So, there are two kinds of outward professions. We're not talking about people who don't claim to be believers. These are all people who would claim to be Christians or followers of Christ or some other similar name. Um, you know, a generation ago, it was very hip to be born again. Everybody was born again. Just ask them. And something like 45%, I think, of, of the U.S. citizenry claimed to be born again at some point. Of course, they all defined it differently. Few of them defined it as Jesus did in John 3. So there are genuine and there are hypocritical. There are ones where our words match our life and there are ones where the words don't match the life. And that's the difference, all right? So that's what outwardly profess means and that's the two types. Question two, how do we obey the gospel? That language might strike some of you as odd. We have used it before. It's, it's scriptural language. It's used multiple times in the New Testament. Think of uh, the beginning and ending of Romans, for example, Romans 1 and Romans 16. It's, it's that. We obey the gospel. The short answer is by believing and repenting. That's what the gospel calls us to, remember. So to live in accordance with the good news about Christ and the bad news of our sin, well, it has clear implications. And we need to obey. Because remember, the gospel is not only an offer, it's not only a statement or good news, it is also, and perhaps most fundamentally, a command. <laughs> it is a command. It is repent and believe the gospel, right? Those are um, imperatives. Those are commandments. Those are rules. Those have to be followed. They're things that have to be obeyed. Does anyone have the sheet for question 92 in front of them? You certainly don't have to, to profit from these. And are the questions and answers, do they, do they fit? The one you sent was 93. It says 92 in the title of the email. Oh. The question sheet is uh, 93. So, yeah. Okay, I, I apologize. I, I don't look at them. I have typed, uh, typed them up years ago. 
but obviously I've got a couple of these in a row that are misnumbered, and I, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'll, I'll, I, er, a few minutes ago I sent a, a number 91 last week's, and it's correct. I'll have to do the same with a 92. Thank you for your patience. I, I'm clearly getting old and slipping. You just need to... I think my wife is at the door voting to put me out of my misery. Is that right, dear? No, apparently not. Oh, well. All right, I will I'll try to do better and look a little closer in future weeks. I apologize again. That's how we obey the gospel. We, we repent and believe. Three, what does the word persevere mean? It means to continue steadfastly, especially in the face of difficulty. Persevere doesn't mean keep going down the snow-filled hill on a bobsled. That's not what it means. <laughs> it means to persist, to keep on, to endure. In old-fashioned language, to be constant. It doesn't mean that we're perfect in the degree, but we stay the course. We keep walking in the one direction. All right. A good New Testament text for that would be Second Peter chapter one verses three to eleven, right? Where Peter lists all of these graces. You're to add this to this to this and add this and add this and add this. And what does he say at the end of that? If you possess these in increasing measures or increasing measure, you know you you'll endure. You'll be saved. You'll be safe. So normally, perseverance is against some friction and it's a testing that God uses to grow us and improve us. Your Christian life over the long haul ordinarily ought to be from glory to glory. It ought to be from grace to grace. You ought to be more like Christ now than some number of years ago. All right. First Peter four seventeen and eighteen says, "It is through difficulties that we are saved." Right. So, perseverance is a necessary grace. And in one of the next questions in future weeks, we'll see that gloriously the perseverance that we need is supplied to us in the new covenant. Everything we need for true and full salvation, Jesus earned for us and grants to us through word and spirit rooted in the new covenant. So question four, must we continue and progress in faith in order to be saved? Now, those of you who have heard the many weeks of sermons on Hebrews should absolutely know the answer to this. It's simply yes. <laughs> Must we continue and progress in faith in order to be saved? Yes. John 8.31 says that the criterion for true discipleship is to continue in Christ's word. Remember, that is the main point of the book of Hebrews that God speaks through his Son by the Holy Spirit in the Word. And we have to keep listening to it 
We have to keep believing it. We have to keep putting it into practice. And the person who does that will find salvation, joy, and God at the end of that journey. 1 Peter 1, 5 to 7, we are kept to the end. How? Through faith. (laughs) Through faith. Faith has to continue if we are to be saved. We We are given, according to Ephesians 6, the shield of faith. And we are never to put that down. The flaming arrows keep coming. If we were to put the shield of faith down, if we were to overthrow our faith, we would be destroyed. Uh, Luke 8, 4-15, teaches that those who hear the word, that is to believe it and retain it, persevere in it, are saved. Many other texts could be given, but the point is to hold fast to the word of God. Our faith must continue if we are to be saved. But of course, as I think it's the next question in the Catechism, will demonstrate to us a, a, a true believer's faith will continue. Yes, it will go up and down. Yes, it will ebb and flow, but it will continue. Right. Question five, what is the holiness that is uh, mentioned in uh, the answer? We have to persevere in faith and holiness in order to be saved. Well, again, this is Part of the lesson of Hebrews 10 and other places that we've talked about, we'll see it right in our face in Hebrews 12, 14. This holiness is practical godliness. Practical godliness. Uh, Brother Rex in the sermon today mentioned imputed righteousness. That's the perfection of, uh, the moral perfection of Christ counted as ours, put on our record, and the imparted which is what he works in us. Those two things are never separate. He never gives one person imputed, but but no imparted. In other words, he doesn't wipe his record clean, but does no renovation of the heart. Those two things are both there or both absent. Again, it's part of God's work of salvation. It's always there, practical godliness. Or we might say obedience to God's law. That's the result of repentance. And since Christians keep believing and keep repenting, holiness is the result. It is the fruit. It is the outworking of God's work in us. Again, um, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the holiness, not that will get you extra rewards in heaven, although it will do that, that leads to heaven, that is necessary for heaven. Pursue the holiness without which no man will see God. It says, if I remember correctly, I mentioned this to some of the men yesterday, it mentions in Revelation uh, the white robe of the saints, uh, two times, I think, in in the book. One of them, it says, it's, um, uh, that's the righteousness of Christ. And later in the book, the robe is what? It's the good deeds of the saints. We always have, if we're real Christians, we always have the imputed perfection of Jesus Christ in righteousness. And we have a growing, yes, imperfect, but we have a growing 
holiness. We have a growing, imparted righteousness. The Spirit is at work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. All right? and, and we do it. So this is the holiness of, of obeying God. So this is persevering in faith and holiness. Those people will be saved. Those people will be saved. And so very quickly, question six, must we continue and progress in holiness in order to be saved? Yes. Um, again, Hebrews 12, 14 that we just quoted. Uh, Matthew 5, part of the Beatitudes, tell us that the ones who do these things, those are the ones who will inherit eternal life. First um, John 1, 7 and 9, uh, a Christian's life is characterized by asking forgiveness for sin, the sins that we will keep committing, and walking in the light. That's not a bad way of summarizing part of the letter to 1 John. Christians ask God for forgiveness, and they walk in the light. Um, and, and that's simply what we mean by to continue and progress in holiness. There'll be more about this in other questions, so we won't, uh, we won't overdo it here. And then question seven, and we faced this question in sermons and in other lessons repeatedly recently. So let's just drive the, the nail all the way home. Let's get it flush below the surface. Question seven, doesn't this mean we're saved by works? No. No. Remember, because something is necessary doesn't mean it's meritorious. Because God requires something doesn't mean if we do it, we earn anything by it. Because this doctrine isn't that we're saved on the merits of faith or the merits of good work. You know, if we do enough of them, or if we do it long enough, we'll earn our way to heaven. Well, how would any person ever know if they did them long enough or well enough? This was one of the great arguments of the reformers against the Roman Catholics who taught that a man could never have assurance. A Christian could not have assurance. In fact, having assurance was bad because it made him lazy. Well, when your salvation is Christ plus your own works, of course, you can never have assurance because if Christ isn't enough and you need to add your own, how do you know when you've done enough? This was one of the great pastoral arguments that Calvin and others used. They hated the fact that the Roman Catholic Church, as it were, made people um, Christians, but kept them in perpetual doubt as a way to really manipulate them. This doctrine is saying that those whose profession of faith is genuine will continue in faith and holiness. It's just that simple. <laughs> If it was God's work, it will continue. And if it's not, it will not. If you have real life from God, it will be lived out. If a man is truly born again, he will know it by his life of continuing belief in good works. These don't earn salvation for the man, but they do demonstrate it, right? So these are necessary graces. Don't, don't wince at that. Don't back off from that. Um, even when some of your friends or, or your own brain might call you a legalist or a, you're adding to Christ. No, no, no. The, the Bible's very plain about this teaching. 
These are necessary graces, not because they save for their own worth, but because they show you possess what you profess. They show that you are truly united to Christ and his life flows through you. Could, could Christ live and not be holy? Well, then how could anyone genuinely united to Christ live their life and not be, to, to some fashion, holy? Genuine faith always has works accompanying it. So holiness is necessary to salvation. You know, think of James 2. Think of Philippians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Yes, it's true, only faith brings us acceptance with God because it connects us to Christ. But good works are the vital consequences and evidences of life with God. All right? Again, I hope that helps. These things are terribly, terribly misunderstood by so many of our fellow Christians today. And it tends to lead them either toward a life of frenetic activity, almost Roman Catholic-like, to make sure they do enough so that God will be pleased with them even though they have Jesus. Or the person never evaluates themselves. And because they've made an outward profession, they know they're saved. Well, both of those are dangerous places to be because that's not the whole picture that the Bible presents of a real Christian. And so if we're going to test ourselves, we need to know the truth. We need to know what we're testing for. We need to know what to look for in ourselves and each other and help one another to heaven. All right? Questions, comments, improvements, and again, I apologize for the questions uh, being wrong.